for those of you who don't know me, I'm Aliyah Baluch. We're going to talk about invasive fungal infections and immunosuppress. So we will go ahead and get started. Uh, and actually, I forgot to edit this slide. I got the date edited by my actually now associate member, associate professor, but that's secondary to the date, obviously. I have no disclosures to make. Uh, I kind of, just to get the brain moving, I like pre-test questions, post-test questions, so obviously don't answer it right now. We'll go over these different components. Um, this was originally also designed for a CME lecture. Uh, <clears throat> how long is the fungal component held from a bronchial lavage before being finaled? What is the empiric drug of choice for candidemia? And which azole antifungals contraindicated if the QTC is short? So. We, these are our goals and objectives for today. We're going to talk about the definition of IFI, who is susceptible to fungal infections, current tools available for workup, because you know culture is great, it's a gold standard, but it doesn't always cooperate with us, especially to patients on therapy, treatment for candidemia, and then fungus non-candida. So fungal infections, why is this important? Well, for those of us who work especially immunosuppressed ID, whether bone marrow transplant or solid organ transplant, it's high mortality, high morbidity. And unfortunately, because there's no nerve fibers in the lungs, you have a paucity of symptoms. You have to have a really big goomba, as I like to say, before you have any discomfort. And that's only because it's abutting the edge of the lung field, and then you can have some pain. Candida species-related infections, you have your invasive form, like your bloodstream infections, or non-invasive, like you have some thrush or you have candida on your skin. Candida species account for approximately 10% of bloodstream infections in the ICU. These candidemias have accrued in-hospital mortality rate of 30%, so pretty significant. Fungal infections specifically say in uh, hematopoietic stem cell transplant, there was a single center 12-year retrospective review. They looked at 92 cases of proven or probable IFI. For early IFI, it's candida, as is reflected in that 2009 Marcy Tomlin paper that we need candida prophylaxis. But the most common pathogen for late IFI is mold for multiple reasons. <coughs> Risk factors for IFI and bone marrow transplant. Um, that's not one of our phones, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So early IFI is a history of IFI, as Dr. Tony likes to say, had it before, got it again. HLA mismatch, prolonged neutropenia, acute graft-versus-host disease. For risk factors for late IFI, history of IFI, steroid therapy, CMV disease, and chronic graft-versus-host disease. As you can see in the purple box also, so IFI-related mortality, 53-plus percent. You have a 12-year overall survival rate was 42% approximately with IFI versus 64% if you didn't have IFI. So at every point in time, if you have this type of infection, you are, for lack of a better word, going to die faster. So. We've been talking about IFI for a few moments here, but how do we actually define this? And sometimes we're a little bit more laid back than we should. When we write our notes, you know, we say, oh, the patient has nodules. Well, not all nodules are fungi. And then there is special vocabulary that you need to know about proven and probable. Um, and then there are different factors, like why you would even have it, like host factors. Is it like if you saw a nodule in myself, I'm semi-normal, like, well, we hope the nodule is not fungus because I'm not immunosuppressed. So I don't have the correct host factors. Then there are clinical manifestations and then mycological evidence. 
There's a very uh, good but somewhat verbose um, article that was in CID from 2008, and it's just talking about the definitions of what is required in order to meet this um, definition of proven or probable IFI. And as you can see, Dr. Bennett's last name is there because he is the senior or premier mold gentleman we have available to us. And then, though it's smaller on my screen, uh, the columns is like analysis and specimen, you have molds versus yeast, and then it breaks it down in like microscopy, the culture, is it from a sterile field, like someone's CNS, is it from blood, is it from CSF, there are special antigens, as you can see, under yeast for CSF, there's cryptococcal antigen in CSF, which would be more consistent with disseminated cryptococcus. So this is for proven, and then you have the different criteria that's required, yet then there's a different slide for probable, and it's a little bit more lenient about what you actually need to meet requirements. So here would be the majority of bone marrow transplant patients that recent history of neutropenia, that would be like my entire service, recipient of a transplant, that's two, you know, one third of my service to half of my service, prolonged use of steroids, that would be a portion, and other recognized T-cell immunosuppression, like immunosuppression. Clinical criteria, so presence of one of the three signs. So there you have a lesion with or without a halo, so our nodules. Air crescent sign, we talk about that. Or cavitation, which we have one of those on 3 West right now, who has a nice little hole in her lung. And so even though we were concerned for mold, ironically, these same images could then end up being a different bug, which is why you really push for your bronchoscopies. And then uh, sinonasal infection, because remembering you can have mucor or you know, other organisms in the rhinocerebral area. Looking for nasal black eschars, these are important, and extension through the orbit, which unfortunately we have also seen. So just kind of pointing out what we actually tell our ENT people, please scope our patient, we are looking for eschar, or we are looking for pallor, which occurs right before the eschar. Sometimes you have to guide them into what are you looking for and please take a sample. So then there is a type about uh, this slide. This is from the same big table because it's a jumbo size pa uh, table for probable. If it's CNS, there are other things, sometimes meningeal enhancement you know, for disseminated candidiasis. So this is tricky because a lot of times you get a dissemination of the candida through the body. We've had cases where they've had the little dot, dot, dots on the arm. We'll take a biopsy, we'll send it for culture, we'll grow it out. But the stuff in the liver won't show up until the counts come back up. Hepatosplenic candidiasis. And um, obviously for mycology, there are direct tests. Galactomannin. So where's the best place to get a galactomannin from? Anybody? Bron from what? Bronchoscopy. From a bronchoscopy. Because like literally that's where your mold is. You're shoving your scope down there. You're putting in sterile water. You're sucking it back out. That's your highest pretest probability. So the idea, the converse of that is a galactomannin from the serum in any random person is relatively useless. So uh, I got to do a re-review because we used to do it as baseline for bone marrow transplant at Moffitt, um, but they were all negative. And I got tired after checking 50 charts. And I was like, okay, this is sufficient. We did 50 charts in a row. I'm like, and we got zero. And I'm like, heuristically, the one person who had a positive galactomannin was someone who had a known fungal pneumonia. 
And so I'm like, you can check it on those ones, but don't be checking on someone who doesn't have any problems. Yeast versus molds. So <coughs> yeast tend to be unicellular, oval, or round, mycelial formation, that fuzzy matted wall, reproduction via budding. Your stereotypical organism being candida. Molds, these are more thread-like filamentous. They have bridging or septated versus aseptated forms. They have asexual reproduction via conidia that they break off and replicate, and aspergillus is an example. Molds, so stereotypically septated aspergillus, non-septated, you have to go and think about mucormycosis, previously known as zygo. So we've gotten dinged before when we've asked patients uh, to go for surgery, to have removal of some horrific lesion that we're like, what is it? It's not growing from bronch. And then the whole sample gets sent to pathology. And then they come back and say, non-septated ribbon-like, and then you're like concerned for mucor. And it just happened, and so unfortunately you get no micro because once it goes in the formula, that sample is never growing in this lifetime. Fungal structures, so for those of you who rotate with me, I used to have this beautiful graphic up in my office before my office got demoted. <laughs> um, so fungal structure is very important to know where your drugs work so that you can then optimize it. So echinocandins, mycofungin is notoriously what we use at Moffitt, it's against the glucans in the cell wall. Whereas polyenes like amphotericin is against ergesterol in the cell membrane. Azoles, triazoles, ergesterol in the cell membrane as well. And then of course in the center you have your pyrimidine analogs, example being flucytosine against the nucleic acid synthesis, that's the nucleus by the way. So we flew through definition of IFI, where do our drugs work, so who is susceptible to fungal infections? Risk factors for disseminated candidiasis, previous exposure, the broad spectrum, and to microbial. So that's kind of like your microbiome has been adjusted. You killed all the good stuff. Now you've left only bad stuff behind. TPN is definitely uh, a problem. Abdominal surgery, breaking the lumen of the gut. CVC, all of our patients on bone marrow transplant have lines. ICU level care, diabetes, or uncontrolled blood sugars, which Definitely for us, um, bone marrow transplant is still an issue considering we give a lot of prednisone in the beginning, they have uh, uh, elevated blood sugars, increased risk for infection. TPN is an odds ratio of 4.44 increased risk for candidemia. Okay, so I mean like when you go, or when we ID go to talk to bone marrow transplant about why we want to wait a little bit longer for TPN, is this type of information that you have to have at your fingertips that increase odds ratio for invasive candidemia. And also it's a dedicated line that's for TPN, which is also a big issue for nursing. TPN is a predisposition specifically for Canada parapsilosis. This is a beautiful question for Dr. Green because this is one of his favorite things to go over when he is blowing through his 200 plus slides. Mm -hmm. That he's like, and what's the Canada that's increases for TPN? And you should be able to say Canada parapsilosis based on these two papers. And then this graphic is just showing again that it is specifically that organism. Uh, again, this is a favorite graphic from uh, Dr. Tomlin, Dr. Rich's paper, talking about the infections that occur when you have mucositis from 0 to 15 to 45, 
and then your infections when you have first engrafted but are say still local up to day 100 and then past 100. The point being here again is that from a fungal perspective, just being neutropenic, having mucositis increases your risk for candida. Once you have approximately 14 days of neutropenia, then your risk also includes mold pneumonia. And this is why, for example, at our hospital, we utilize mycofungin because of lack of drug-drug interactions. But then after 14 days of neutropenia, we'll ask the team, even though the patient is afebrile, may we have a CT without contrast, please, looking for asymptomatic nodules in the lung try to catch them before it's a super big problem. From 2001 to 2006 in the US, overall one-year cumulative <coughs> incidence of IFI and allogenic transplant patients is approximately 3.4. As all comers understand, of course, the more immunosuppression, the more ATG, the more alterations we do to you, like a mismatch, you're gonna have a higher rate of infection. This is Jay Fishman's paper talking about organ transplant. Similar idea is like when you're at risk for mold infections and in general tends to be one to four months, not immediately, but there can be depending if you get in that cycle of rejection of your organ requiring more steroids, which definitely can occur, that then you would be at increased risk for mold later on as well. All right, so we went through who, what about tools? Some tools are better than others, just like anything else. So blood cultures, you know, positive less than 50% of the cases when we're looking for just regular bacteria. Fungal blood culture, so these tubes, they look like a regular blood culture, but they actually have antibiotics inside. They kill the regular bacteria, allowing time for the fungus, which is a little bit more finicky, to actually grow out. Traditionally held for four weeks. And then for us, as an example, there are these blood culture identification platforms. We utilize a BioFire film array and then uh, the blood culture identification panel, which comes, for example, you do a blood culture, it's positive. They take out a small sample, do a gram stain. They release that information, call the nurse. You have a yeast. Then they also take a sample, they put it in the BioFire platform, and in approximately one hour, it will spit out a result, potentially giving you a type of candida, which is actually very spiffy. So this is just a graphic showing how this is done. It's approximately a $46,000 machine. And then you have these little sachets. You don't have to be pipetting to any great accuracy. So, which is nice, it's very convenient. You get your result. This is the same machine that has many different multiplex PCRs. It goes through a PCR1 and a PCR2 to give you your result, as it shows approximately only two minutes of hands-on time. And then it looks at, for example, with BCID 27 targets. These are the targets. Note that actually three of these targets are actually for resistance. They're not all for bugs. So it's a kind of a different paradigm um, whereas they wanted to give us some gram-positive, gram-negative, and yeast, kind of like a mixed bag. But it's definitely helped move things forward. But then what still takes a while? Susceptibilities. And so sometimes it's a little frustrating from the ID side. They're like, oh, you have the name of the bug. Well, give me discharge directs. And I'm like, nah, it's not that simple. I still need it to get a pure colony on a plate that then can go for us. We utilize the Vitec and then it will spit out susceptibilities. Since we're talking about yeast, I just want to point out so we can only look for albicans, glabrata, cruzii, parapsilosis, and trop. 
always whenever there's a new test that comes to the forefront you want to see if it's you know reproducible that's the bottom line from this slide is yes the uh, results are reproducible there's also ongoing um, information with the MALDI MALDI is a matrix assisted laser desorption ionization time of flight spectrometer and so what's also spiffy of this is like even faster it has a huge library of information that spits out your result but still does not have sensitivity and even more so for yeast will take additional steps to then get that type of information that still is time consuming and patient requiring. What I liked about this graphic, it wasn't just me having fun looking at a bunch of different articles, was the, especially the top part is when you're trying to think about biomarkers. Like we're clinicians, but I do like to stretch that part of my brain that looks at research about how do you make biomarkers. You want to know when does your biomarker turn positive. You don't want your biomarker to turn positive when it's just living with you, colonized on you. A little bit of yeast in your armpit or your groin, eh, not that big a deal. That's what physical exam is for. But you want a biomarker to flip positive when all of a sudden you are about to have invasive fungal infection. That's what this is mainly showing, especially in the top arrow, is that trying to create biomarkers that become positive when you're at true risk for infection and it's not just hanging out with you. There are certain DNA sequencing, like SNPCRs for detection of candidate species DNA. We do not use that at our facility. This is more about education. There are manins and anti-manin antibodies. Definitely, um, I got flagged with a very odd email end of last week, beginning of this week. The patient's far, um, pharmacy told us they refused, the insurance had refused to give him his voracotazole because he had to have one of these three criteria. And I was like, really? Platelia Canada antigen test? You want that? And I was like, wait a minute. I opened up his chart. I'm like, his bronch was positive. So I took a picture. I sent it to the team. I'm like, yo, culture actually grew mold three different kinds. Send that to the pharmacy. And needless to say, he got his drug the next day for free. So uh, they just forgot that the gentleman was one of our few that was actually frothing with multiple different molds and it was a non-issue. Of course, he had infection. He was a proven case. In non-immunosuppressed patients, there's increased sensitivity and specificity if these two antibodies are drawn together. As you can see, the numbers are there. The problem is in our immunosuppressed patients, our tests just in general tend not to be as good. Hepatosplenic candidiasis, I kind of touched upon it earlier. It's a definite issue more so in malignant heme because they're neutropenic longer than for bone marrow transplant patients. But diagnosis is usually via imaging and it's a presumptive diagnosis. It's like, well, you know, this kind of feels like a hepatosplenic case because you won't know for sure until the counts come up later. You do your variety of different imaging, oftentimes CT scan. But what was interesting about the manin or anti-manin positive test had a median of 16 days prior to the radiological findings of these special lesions. So I thought that was kind of spiffy that we would get a lead time into it. Manin and anti-manin, so you have to know also, is it all comers, all types of candida, or is it, you know, works for some and not for others? And you can see here, sensitivity is highest for albicans, glabrata, and trop, but poor for parapsilosis and cruzii. So unfortunately, and this is probably one of the reasons why we don't keep it at our local um, hospital, is it simply isn't good enough for the bugs that we have. Antimyosteal antibodies, so this is an immunofluorescence assay. 
Um, there are different gerb tube antibodies. Again, sensitivity is not really where we want it. It's only uh, 77 to 89% with a specificity of 91 to 100%. It's been reviewed in different patient populations, but again, just doesn't kind of make that benchmark that makes it worthwhile for us to do that investment. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we keep in the micro lab. I was very sad to find out that there was a machine that we had invested in, for example, um, quite a lot of money, that then the company went bankrupt. So now we're left with, as one of our senior staff members said, a very, very expensive paperweight. And so when we choose these types of equipment, it's not just about how good is it for us now, how good is it gonna be in five years, and is it sustainable? Can we get the resources to run these machines? 1,3-beta-D-glucan. So if anything that I see the most come in outside records is probably this one, is 1,3-beta-D-glucan. I believe the St. Joseph Hospital system uses this. It's a component of the cell wall of most fungi, but not zygo or crypto. So you have to also know, so who am I going to have a hole in coverage? So, um, so it's not like it's a failure. It simply doesn't have the ability to look for that. Sensitivity, 77%. Specificity, 85 in the ICU in already a proven or probable case. False positives. You always want to know, like we talk about procals on my rotation, false positives for 1,3-beta-D-glucan, albumin, immunoglobulins, dialysis, abdominal surgery, beta-lactams, or gram-positive bacteremia. That's kind of like all my patients. Mm -hmm. So again, not really the best for us, um, but it is not affected by the use of antifungals, which is very nice. Unlike our cultures, which of course will stunt our fungi. So if possible for us, our teams know that like if I'm ordering a bronch, I really try to hold off and tell the bronch before starting antifungals. Galactomannan. So this is a polysaccharide, a major component of the aspergillus cell wall. Uh, found in other fungi except for mucormocalis. It's measured as a quantitative or qualitative. Honestly, you want the quant because you can, the gentleman who had the positive blood quant, you would actually see it come down the amount as he got treated for his fungal infection, which is very cool. Specificity, 84%. Lower sensitivity in organ transplant patients compared to bone marrow transplant. So usually, honestly, things are much better in SOT than in BMT, but for once, we came out on top. Yeah, made me happy. Fungal assay comparisons. Again, I love tables. This is how I think is compare and contrast. So if you have Cryptococcus neoformans, 1,3-beta-D-glucan has a lower amount of antigen compared to Canada. And then you have to understand this. So for some reason, even though it's not aspergillus, it does cross-react with galactamin. And I was like, oh, look at that. And then Rotaturula, as you can see, it has two-thirds the amount of 1,3-beta-D-glucan as well compared to Canada. And pneumocystis, it cross-reacts with 1,3-beta-D-glucan, which that's actually something that often can be on an ID board question. So treatment. What is really the important thing to take out of this slide set is how to take care of these patients. Well, if you have a positive test, you kind of have to know the flavor of the bugs in your state, in your city, and in your hospital. And this then helps you then risk stratify what are you gonna actually treat with empirically. So this was looking at the path alliance about what are the different bugs, and at that time it was still mainly Canada, but this is slowly but steadily shifting. <clears throat> so 
drug of choice empirically is still going to be in a kind of canton. Uh, there was a patient who actually is on the immunotherapy service that we're not actually consulted because they were still debating to go forward or go not, and she popped a positive yeast in the blood, and we were trying to tell them that she actually was on fluke for prevention and obviously broke through that, and the stewardship team was trying to tell them if she doesn't go CMO, that she should be on a kinocandin, correctly so. Candida albicans, parapsilosis, and tropicalis, you can consider the use of high-dose fluconazole. Candida glabrata, ideally a kinocandin, unless you have specific sensitivities otherwise. Candida cruzi, echinocandins, and then the graphic I updated kind of with the numbers that Sanford is using for 2018. You just have to understand definitely some of these organisms will have higher MICs, but they're still technically sensitive. And the two things to remember, especially Candida cruzi, no fluke for you, and Candida lusitania, definitely no AMFO for you, okay? So candidemia, duration, if someone asks you rough estimate, your minimum is 14 days from negative culture, there has to be a lack of abscess, lack of disseminated infection, in patients that are improving, because obviously if your patient's not improving, you might be barking up the wrong tree or you're missing something else, and source control has been obtained. For example, the line has been removed. So antifungal stewardship. So ASP, we think sometimes too narrow. That's just about antibodies, but it's also about antivirals. It's definitely about antifungals. Then non-culture diagnostics are designed to improve the diagnosis of invasive candidiasis, make it earlier, make it so that we can make the best decisions as fast as possible for our patients. So this was just looking at the different types of biomarkers, if they could make their interventions earlier. And they were using it actually as a biomarker to discontinue fungal therapy, and that actually um, they were able to kind of stop them early, which was kind of neat. I just don't think it's yet at prime time yet. We don't utilize these. There's a lot of times when I review papers talk about biomarkers, and I'll send an email to the head of the micro lab. I'm like, Dr. Sandine, do you know what this test is? They say, no. I'm like, okay, thank you. <laughs> On to the next paper. Because even though they make it sound like it's popular, it's like popular maybe in like one center, not necessarily on the national level. So again, that this is saying that antifungals could be deceived in 53% of the patients that they were looking at with no infection with a sensitivity of 97%, which is very nice at first glance, but not necessarily for all comers, especially it would be difficult to push that type of agenda in an immunosuppressed type of patient. What about treatment? So treatment fungus non-Canada, so your VORI, your AMFO products of which they have many flavors, depending how or if they have um, lipid in them, hosoconazole and isoviroconazonium. Uh, just heuristically, mind you, we've been having issues with isoviroconazonium with breakthrough, so we're not sure if it's related to compliance or drug levels, which unlike with VORI, which is very well known in the pharmacy sector, PKPD issues, you need to have VORI levels, ideally five to seven days after starting the VORI with isoviroconazonium, there is no recommendation for that. And as far as I've seen, nobody is actively doing it, but we've just been seeing a couple very peculiar breakthroughs of infection, which is making me a little bit worried because it's one of our main options at uh, Moffitt. Are you talking about any particular 
particular specific molds? Or mm, fusarium. Fusarium, okay. Is, uh, we've had uh, one case was distinctively on it, one case was not, but we've just been seeing issues with, and it, it probably has to do with because we're using so many, we're going to see it. We have patients that have prolonged neutropenia. They're going to break through on something. It's just a matter of what and when. So invasive fungal infections and stem cell transplant patients, if you looked at that group and you said, what bugs do you get? Aspergillus, mucormycosis, and fusarium. So aspergillus being the second most common IFI, drug of choice, vori, isoviroconazonium, and ampho products. Mucor, this is our third most common um, IFI. Understand there's many different subtypes. Uh, we have seen all of these at Moffitt. Drug of choice, Ampho, Alternatives, Posa, Isoviroconazonium. If possible, patient needs to have debridement. Fusarium, fourth most common. Uh, for Moffitt, we actually often will just say Fusarium species. We won't actually give all the details. Drug of choice, Ampho products, Voriposa, also surgical debridement, decreased immunosuppression if possible. This is why we, is literally in our booklet, before you come in for transplant, you are not allowed to clip your nails. Sometimes, unfortunately, patients still do it and then we have problems. Or they bang their nail. Or as one patient said, well, it was bothering me, so I ripped it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Again, since I like comparing and contrasting, this is one of my favorite tools, and I use this even when I give lecture for internal medicine. So if you were to compare and contrast the three big, like, triazole-type drugs and amphol. So contraindicated with prolonged QTC, Vori and Posa. Contraindicated with short QTC, isoviroconazonium. Hallucinations. When you go to start Vori, please counsel ahead of time. Your patient's about the 30% chance of visual alterations. A lot of it is color change, but it could be things like I see bunny rabbits across the floor. I wouldn't use a bug that could occur like geckos. We live in Florida. Don't use something that could occur. You use something that should not occur like bunny rabbits. So, and then uh, nephrotoxicity, all formulations. So that's going to be the Ampho products. If you're talking about nephrotoxicity IV formulation, this is Vori with the cyclodextrin. Mind you, so there are certain drugs, acyclovir being the one that comes to mind, that also when you make it IV has increased nephrotoxicity, but that's a different mechanic. It's just that you have to be know specifically for Vori, cyclodextrin is the reason why. Drug level monitoring recommended, so this is for Vori. Drug-drug interactions, all of the azoles. Photosensitivity rash, I love this one because, you know, I saw it happen. I had counseled my patient. It's actually happened twice now. Thankfully, only twice in six years isn't too bad. My patient, we live in Florida. He decided he wanted to go fishing one last time. He came in looking like a purple smurf. And, um, yeah, it lasted the whole duration of the admission for his aloe transplant. Uh, transaminitis definitely can occur for any of the azoles. Fluorid accumulation, this came out the data approximately five years ago in a CID article, pediatric case. Traditionally, the risk factors are prolonged voriconazole, more than three months is what we're talking about. So there are some programs um, that will use voriconazole the entire time the patient's on immunosuppression. 
So lo and behold, they saw fluoride accumulation, and they saw what we tend to only see in solid organ transplant, which is the increased risk for skin cancer. And so they actually, that program is slowly drifting away from VORI and becoming more a POSO program. But the idea is, I mean, they're a little bit of an outlier in that independent of the dose of immunosuppression, they keep antifungal coverage. And I was a little surprised, but everybody does it a little bit differently. What about resistance patterns? Again, resistance is not just about bacteria or viruses, but it also includes fungi. And that overall Canada species resistance, it is increasing. We're up to 6%. I would actually say some places you might have more because we've done some additional um, fungal resistance here at Moffitt. We've definitely seen a trend for worsening and more aggressive resistance. Canada glabrata and fluke resistance, see how fast that changed. In a mere three years, it went from 7 to 12. And in terms of Aspergillus fumigatus, is now minimum up to 6%. Unfortunately, there's only one center in all of the United States that does mold sensitivity. So I suspect it is higher, just people aren't sending samples to them. What about MDR candidemia? This had hit the lay news semi-recently, though you can look from this article, it's been around since before 2013. Candida auris. All these samples from these three different places were resistant to fluke. There are 11 of the samples were resistant to vori. 7 to flucytosine, 5 of them elevated MICs of CASPO, about 29% had breakthrough fungemia, and ultimately 4 patients died because they simply had no drugs that would treat the bug. So that's very, very bad. And that's around the corner for everybody. So let's talk about some special bugs. Anyone want to give a gander what this bug is without reading the bottom line? <laughs> <laughs> yes, crypto. All right, so it's a yeast. Uh, it happens or uh, disseminating infections, impaired cellular immunity. Uh, a portion of statistically is related to HIV. You can actually have a bloodstream infection, uh, definitely neurological infection. We see this often. You can have a cryptococcoma pulmonary infection. We look at the cryptococcal antigen. Um, except in non-neoformans, non-gadii cryptococcal species. And then you, these are the ones that you tend to give amphlo and flucytosine, or if you're in an impoverished area, they can do high-dose fluconazole. So this one is also got the name at the bottom. So this is Rotaturula, red yeast. I was very fascinated with this one. So I'm like, oh, we're going to throw this one in. So opportunistic yeast, increased incidence in those with CVCs, heme disorders, AIDS, burns, IVDU, and ICU patients. I'm like, oh, why don't we have this at Moffitt? And I'm like, no, 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 I shouldn't say that. I don't want this at Moffitt. So if yours and patients breaking through or on fluke or in a kinecandin, which again would be my hospital, uh, diagnosis, blood culture, 70% of systemic infections. So it should very easily, if it's there, we should be able to get a positive test. It's susceptible to amphlo and flucytosines, intrinsically resistant to fluke and echinocandin, which makes sense. And high MICs of Vorium posa. So if you got a call about a red yeast in your patient's blood sample, you're like, amphlo would be your answer. This one, silver stain, PCP or PJP, depending on where you trained. Uh, opportunistic infection, uh, traditionally AIDS patients with a CD4 count less than 200 or immunosuppressed patients or if your patient simply is not on the appropriate profi. This one has a 1,3 beta D glucan, we had talked about before, but no ergesterol. 
and that there are different types of um, or styles of making positivity. What I liked is this graphic I stand from Yanina talking about who is at risk because sometimes we get stuck in the idea is just HIV. It's like, no, actually more related to steroids, so heme patients, connective tissue disorder patients, solid tumors, you know, transplant patients, or all these inflammatory patients. They all are at risk for pneumocystis. Treatment, non-critically ill, you can see um, the Bactrim treatment. So 14 to 21 days. 21 days is statistically what we used to recommend for AIDS patients. But there's more and more data that actually in the heme and BMT sector, you can get away with 14 days worth of therapy without any complications. Again, another great graphic. I'm obviously not the only one who thinks in table format. Um, when you compare and contrast PCP in an HIV positive patient versus HIV negative patient, so a couple key things. Ease of diagnosis that in an HIV patient you have a large amount of PCP, your bronch will be positive. Whereas in an immunosuppressed patient you might have a little bit harder time if you don't have a high sensitivity lab. So. We'll kind of come full circle here about you know, the ideal world that lives in the head of Dr. Belouch, which would be me. The ideal antifungal, wide spectrum of activity, minimal side effects, that you wouldn't have an infusion-related reaction, you wouldn't have nephrotoxicity or hepatotoxicity, and heaven forbid, we wouldn't have to supplement your K, mag, or anything else. We wouldn't have to worry about drug-drug interactions like we unfortunately do for all our azoles, and you know, I would love if we could have a one-to-one -one PO versus IV option. And then more importantly, because this never happens, is it should be low cost. People make fun of me. They're like, all oh, your drugs are so expensive. I'm like, mm, they're also relatively new. So, but we try our best. We're very lucky that our pharmacists, including for Publix, um, that they do a lot of patient assistance programs that help us get our meds for as reasonable as possible for our patients. So we'll escape the world of my brain. So we went through all of this in very rapid format. We went over the definition of IFI, who is susceptible to fungal infections, the tools that we use, the treatments that are there, and the resources that we use. So remember, high mortality, high morbidity, ICU patients, diabetes, immunosuppressed, that there are cultures to be done, there are biomarkers to be pulled, maybe not here, maybe the biomarkers are different wherever you rotate. There are biomarkers that help you start therapy, biomarkers maybe to help you stop therapy. And in reality, your antifungals come in big three flavors, echinocandins, triazoles, and amphotericin. So with that being said, how long is the fungal component of the bronch held until it's finalized? Four weeks, perfect. Empiric drug of choice for candidemia is? In a kinocandin. And which azo is contraindicated as the QTC is short? Presemba, isoverocondizonium. So I was trying to find some bonus information. And so there were a couple new articles that were popping up, but I didn't get the full article yet. And this one was talking about epidemiology of IFI, looking at these patient populations. Their bottom line was, of course, that it's not uncommon, I hate double negatives, but whatever, and that affect a broad spectrum of patients, and that of course it has a high mortality. I'm like, well, I knew that before I read your abstract, but it's still good to be reminded. 
Aspergillus PCR in Bronx. So this is your galactamenin. Of course, it's going to be good when it's being, you know, taken from the area where the aspergillus is. I'm like, that's good. And then mold infections and solid organ transplant. Always like to look at new information for our organ transplant. Again, related to the level of immunosuppression of the particular organ. If you're in a very immunosuppressed organ, like a lung, that's exposed to the world a lot, like the lung, you're going to be the highest risk. And that is a big point to take away. And as always, I like to, for acknowledgement, say thank you to our patients, the staff, and the SMART team. Uh, because without them we can't move forward with good stewardship you know this is also our friends and people on bone marrow transplant as well as one of our older photos for the original smart team and then uh, if you have any questions please don't feel that there is a problem go ahead send me an email and then last but not least because I like to talk about money is that the machine the machine price changes because now there is instead of a single seated biofire, there's actually one that looks like a, a townhome or like a high rise. And the reagents, and that there are many different panels. We actually have the meningitis encephalitis panel, and actually now the current, the new pending one past this article is there's this, we use the respiratory panel for the lungs, but there's actually a pneumonia one. So I'm like, oh yay, more bugs I won't know what to do with. <laughs> so, but we'll see when that comes at prime time. And thank you very much.